the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. One of the darkest moments leading up to the cross. Next, on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Sometimes I honestly believe that God allowed for this scene to be recorded into Scripture so that you and I would find hope and encouragement in those dark moments of our lives. You know those moments where we feel like all hope is gone and all hope is lost. It's at that time that we can go to the Garden of Gethsemane and see our elder brother go through something far deeper than you or I could have ever imagined. The Garden of Gethsemane. That's what we focus in on today here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Please join us as we get a glimpse into one of the darkest moments of our elder brother's life for your glory and mine. Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Have you ever gone to pick up something that you were pretty confident you could pick up without much effort? And then you reach down to pick it up, and it is far heavier than you first thought. No matter how much you strain, you cannot pick that object up. That's the way it is with this short passage that I read to you earlier. It is so heavy that you and I cannot plummet its depths. And some of us are going to go deeper into truth today than we have ever gone and learn things about Christ we've never known. And even then, we will only skim the surface. Because if we dive deeply into this passage, our lungs and eardrums will burst long before we reach the bottom. So my prayer is that after looking at the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, all of us will leave this place today lost in wonder, love, and praise. Jesus and the apostles have been in the upper room, and now Jesus leaves that upper room where the Passover and the first Lord's Supper were celebrated. And he now enters a night of deep suffering and betrayal. But he goes in darkness to the place of slaughter, singing. Listen to what Matthew says about the transition from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now in the upper room, Jesus prophesied his betrayal by Judas. He prophesied his denial by Peter. He was heavy with the burden of his imminent death and cross, and yet he leaves the upper room singing. And wouldn't you love to know what he was singing? Well, I actually think that we can make a pretty well-educated guess 
because it was the practice of the Jewish people in the first century to sing after Passover a group of psalms that are called the Hillel from Psalm 113 to 118. So he was probably singing one of those psalms. Now, here you have the author of the book of songs singing his own songs. And trust me, no one had ever sung them before or will they ever sing them like Jesus did on his way to the garden of Gethsemane. So let's look at one of those psalms now. Turn to Psalm 116. I can imagine that this is probably one of the songs that he would have sung that evening. Now, as we read this, I want you to picture Jesus singing it. He's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, his betrayal and his crucifixion, and he's singing, most likely, this particular psalm. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I shall call on him as long as I live. The cords, cords of death encompass me. The terrors of the grave come upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord perseveres preserves the simple, and I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you, for thou hast rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Oh, Lord, surely I am thy servant. I am thy servant, the son of thy handmaid. Thou hast loosed my bonds. To thee I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all the people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. You're not going to understand that psalm unless you understand that Jesus is the one singing it. And even as he goes out, knowing what awaits, he is singing because he loves God with all of his heart and soul to the very last. There is not the slightest twinge of fear or doubt about God's love for him and what God has planned for him. He loves him to the very end with all of his heart and all of his soul. He is singing this song probably from memory. And I am certain that Satan and the demons heard Jesus singing, singing, and I'm sure it scared them to death. I know God heard Jesus singing because he was singing vicariously. He was saying, Lord, I know you are going to hear my prayer because I owe myself to you. 
And as I yield myself entirely up to you, I know in me you are going to hear all those for whom I will shed my precious blood in just a few hours. I am about to suffer for them. I am about to die for them, and so I sing for them in their place your praise. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was actively loving God with all of his heart as he was laying down his life as our substitute. The contrast of what Jesus did in the upper room and what he experienced at Gethsemane is sharp enough for anybody to pick up a Bible and notice. And by the way, do you know what the word Gethsemane means? It means olive press. And Christ was definitely feeling the horrific events that were about to under, what he was about to undergo pressing down upon him. Many of the thoughts that I am going to be presenting to you today are taken from a three-volume set of books that I've actually mentioned to you before called The Suffering of Christ by Claus Schilder, <clears throat> or as I've heard it said, Skilder. And it is the only set of books in my library where I have learned something on every single page that I never knew before. In the upper room, we see Jesus in calmness, speaking about Judas, sopping up the bread in the fruit mixture, teaching the apostles, and singing hymns. And then he leaves the upper room, crosses the book of Kidron, and he goes to the garden of Gethsemane at the foot of Mount Olives, where he then suffers deathly anguish and sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. There in the garden of Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Never before have we seen Jesus so emotionally distraught in the gospel according to Luke. He had faced raging storms on the Sea of Galilee. He had faced demonic opposition, satanic temptations, threats from Jewish leaders, all with total composure. But here, in Gethsemane, the disciples must have been deeply distressed by what they saw in Jesus. Jesus throws himself to the ground, cries and agonizes in prayer, sweats, bloody sweat profusely. Something terrible was about to happen. Jesus knew it, and the disciples were beginning to realize it. In verse 39, you see an interesting little phrase. It says, he went to Gethsemane as was his custom. Now, in this last week, he was actually staying in the Mount of Olives with friends. And it was his custom, apparently, to go in the evening to Gethsemane to rest and pray. He went there this night because he knew Jesus, Judas knew that is where he would go. He had already said, Judas is going to betray me. And he told Judas to go do it quickly. And Judas knew where Jesus would be that night for he had been going to Gethsemane regularly. So Jesus went to one place that Judas would expect him to go. Jesus didn't hide. He didn't try to escape. 
he walked right into what Judas thought was his well-laid trap where Christ would be betrayed. Now, what do you see in this? Once again, I see Jesus in absolute, complete control. He is in control of the entire situation. He knows what he is doing. Everything has been determined from the beginning, and having set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, he is going to see to it that he gets to the cross the next day. And no one, no one is going to keep him from it. And he knows all the details are set in place to move him along to Gethsemane and the cross. Acts 4, 27 and 28 say this, Truly in this city of Jerusalem that were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And so Jesus was following the plan that he and his father had worked out from all eternity. Now let me ask you a question. And it really needs to be asked at this time. Because people often come to the story of the Garden of Gethsemane and they say they just can't understand all of this. They say that they know people who have faced death with less agony than Jesus. They know soldiers who have gone into battle fully expecting to die, who displayed very, very little anguish as they went to face the enemy. They never had a Gethsemane experience. Don't you think it's kind of weak of Jesus compared to all the people who have died more bravely? Well, I'm going to give you several reasons why it is blasphemous to compare the suffering and death of Jesus Christ and how he faced that suffering with that of any other human being. It is incomparable. And it is a blasphemous thought to compare the way anybody you know or have read about who faced death to the way Jesus faced death in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, let me give you several reasons. The first is that Christ's life mission was not that of any other human being. Jesus knew that his mission was to suffer the penalty that sin deserved. Whatever sin deserved, it was his calling to endure it, to bear it. So it was part of his calling to quake in anguish before God. As Schilder said, one would need to have been in hell for some time in order to understand what it was that was tearing Jesus apart in the Garden of Gethsemane. Second, Christ is a human being unlike any other human being. He is sinless. He hates sin. So who can say how intensely the bearing of sin and sin's curse and the identification of Jesus with something he hates with all of his heart affected this sinless man? Third, other heroes have faced death bravely, knowing that death was that of the body, but not of the soul or the spirit like the early martyrs. They went into the arena knowing that they were about to be put, torn to death by hungry lions, but it was their bodies, not their spirits, that faced death. 
their bodies died, but their spirits did not in the way their bodies did. Christ's death was entirely different. Childers said, when Jesus sees death coming upon him in the garden, he sees it coming upon every plane of his life. His body must die. His soul must die. He must experience death fully. He must know and he must sense physical death. That is the separation of soul and body. Spiritual death. The grievous state of being forsaken by God. Eternal death. The complete realization of the consequences of being forsaken by God in hell. Who can dare compare Christ and the way he faced death with anyone else? Death penetrates each part of his human body. Death forces its way into him. It completely enters him and it enters into his whole being. Unquote. Don't ever compare the way Jesus faced death with anyone else's death. Fourth, human beings other than Jesus confront only an individual's struggles in death. All individuals die. Each individual person lives his own life, and then he dies his own death. Not so Christ. Christ died as the last Adam, the covenant head, and representative of billions of elect people. And it was as our mediator that the Lord Jesus Christ vicariously suffered anguish in the face of death. And that was about that with, of his death that he was about to die. He was about to experience the consequences of sin for billions of people. An entirety, an eternity of consequences packed into three days. Who can dare compare that with the suffering of a faithless debtor? Fifth, other people can experience comfort in death by thinking of death in terms of time and space. And here is how we do it, and this is the way we should do it. Here, I must suffer for a little while. There, I shall live for an eternity. Here is light of fiction. There is the eternal weight of glory. On this side of the grave, I must suffer. On the other side of the grave, I shall enjoy eternity. That was not so with Jesus. True, as a human being, Jesus suffered in time and space. But in his person, the burdens he bore and the weights he saw in the balances of the scale, both of these had infinite weight. The contrast for him was not a little time of suffering here before eternal life or light affliction before weight of glory, but of an eternal death and an infinite weight of misery packed into three days in the grave. Who could possibly make any comparisons? We might say what Jesus experienced in Gethsemane and on Calvary is what every unbeliever experiences in hell throughout all eternity. Six, others who die believing may cast their anchor safely and firmly on, in God as they enter the storm of death. 
so that you find comfort because you are anchored in God, even though you don't know exactly what is about to happen. Well, in suffering death, Jesus wanted to fix his anchor in God, to move his ship to solid pillars of faithfulness of God. But the awfulness of his situation is when he cast his anchor, God receded from him and God forsook him in his moment of death. Now, let me ask you a question. Knowing that Jesus was bearing our sins through his life, knowing that he saw everything coming beforehand, why did Jesus sink down so suddenly and experience such a sudden intensification of anguish? He knew all along that this was about to happen, but it suddenly brings him into a sinking experience? The answer to that question is to be found in the Lord our God. And beloved, we should leap for joy at the answer to the question. It is God alone who explains the meaning of Gethsemane and Jesus' sudden fall from the heights of the upper room and his singing explains the meaning of Gethsemane. Jesus' sudden fall from the heights of the upper room to the depths of the Garden of Gethsemane was so sudden and so acute as it was because God began forsaking him at that point in his life. The beginning of Christ's sorrow coincides with the beginning of God's departure from him. Now, wrath flares up against him, for he must know what it means to represent a host of condemned people and yet be forsaken by them all. God withholds the comfort of the Holy Spirit from Jesus. The helpful assurance of love, the assurance of faith are forsaken. Jesus peers into the darkness looking for God and God is not to be found. If we are seeking a resting place for our thoughts and our consideration of this troubling incident in Gethsemane, we must find it in this thought. Any attempt to understand the meaning of the Garden of Gethsemane is sacrilege and folly unless it discovers the explanation in our Almighty God. This is our mediator in the Garden of Gethsemane, covered with our sins, dying in our place. And he tries to find comfort as a man in God. And God begins to recede. And he sinks. Look at verse 30, 40. You see here his exhortation to his apostles. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, there was no danger in Jesus failing. The danger was in the apostles giving in to temptation that night. And the danger was because they didn't understand his death. They thought he was going to be a great general and lead them to overthrow the oppression of, of the Roman Empire and set up a Jewish empire throughout the entire earth. So he says, I want you to pray for yourselves that you do not give in to temptation to keep me off the cross. 
don't give in temptation to resist my sacrifice. You're going to be tempted to resist the will of God from all eternity for my death and for yourself. Don't resist it. Don't give in to Satan's temptations. Submit to my death. You must pray that you enter not into temptation. And beloved, so must we. You must pray that you enter not into temptation because that is the only way you are going to keep from betraying Christ. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported, which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are two in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found, again, at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.